106.5 WFMP Louisville. This is Community Control Now. I'm your co-host, Vincent Gonzalez, here with my esteemed colleague, Michael T. We are going to talk about today the link between white supremacist groups and policing, uh, the history of it, and how it affects how we are policed as a community today. Community Control Now, we focus on the democratic control of the police, the ability to hire and fire police officers, as well as uh, have more of a democratic say in how the policing is in this community. So, um, how you doing, Brother T? Oh, what's happening? What's happening? Yeah, so... Um, Shout out to all the activists. Yeah, right on. So, we're coming with it today here. Um, See, you brought a couple of things to talk about. Um, what you got here for the people? Well, as you pointed out, we want to focus on, in this particular episode, on the connection between the police and the Klan. And that's a critical topic, uh, but it's at the heart of the need for community control of the police because we know that the policing forces, you know, from local police all the way up to the FBI and state police and other security forces have uh, more often than not been infiltrated by some of the biggest white supremacists and nationalists in the United States. And that connection needs to be made clear and that's all the more reason why there has to be community control to weed those elements out. Um, so, as always, we need to get into the history behind that. And we see that, as many people know, the Klan started, was started by ex-Confederate officers after the defeat of... Uh, uh, the Confederate States of America. Um, these were unrepentant white supremacists. And they, their mission was to drive us back as close as possible to enslavement without actually calling it that. So these ex-Confederate um, officers got together to intimidate us and to uh, brutalize us and even to kill us and discourage us from making any kinds of strides toward actual freedom. And, you know, when we look at that period with the rise of the Klan and especially up to uh, the turn of the 20th century, we see that uh, there was a reign of terror, which was not the first reign of terror, but uh, there was a definite uh, reign of terror that occurred against African Americans and their allies uh, during that period. So did we see a shift uh, around that time? Uh, we're looking at post-Reconstruction, but was there any sort of you know, ideological shift within these white supremacist groups, you know, one that actively um, sought out the, uh, you know, violent acts against um, blacks as well as any other group that went against 
their end goals. A shift? Yes, and, and and just a point of clarification, you know, the Klan emerged after the Civil War. There's even some contention that they emerged during the Civil War, uh, but it was clearly um, various groups, the Knights of the White Chameleon, you know, they all weren't called the Klan, um, and they had their own allies, but uh, that was an emergence uh, primarily after the Civil War to prevent the reconstruction of the South. Um, and um, as I said, they uh, initiated a reign of terror that, as Frederick Douglass would say, would shame a nation of savages, which is why a lot of people don't want to deal with that. But nevertheless, it occurred. Um, and um, the um, it got so bad that uh, under the Grant administration, um, there was an anti-Ku Klux Klan bill, federal bill passed, uh, designed to marshal the forces to suppress this. I mean, because it was causing so much havoc uh, in the uh, ex-Confederacy that the federal government, which has never been totally committed to suppressing these forces because, as we know, the federal government itself was formed as a white supremacist project from the beginning. And even though every white person wasn't a die-hard white supremacist, as I tell people, they've always held a prominent role at the ruling class table from the beginning all the way up to now. And at various times, the contradictions have gotten so great that even elements in the ruling class have had to suppress them, just like we're seeing today, you know, with the struggles uh, that were revealed with the, uh, the Capitol siege. So the Grant administration had to suppress them. They passed some uh, anti-Ku Klux Klan bills that didn't effectively suppress them, uh, in large part because by, you know, the 1870s, white supremacy as an ideology had so infected the body politic that they had a lot of sympathy, you know, and even the ones who weren't running with the Klan, a lot of the white folks who weren't even running with the Klan and who would have never committed those murders, they were not turning these people in. They knew who they were, but they, as we say, their silence was complicity, which allowed this Frankenstein monster to, to grow and to spread all across the country. Now, uh, with the advent of uh, the Plessy versus Ferguson, you want to say something there? Oh, yes. Okay. I'm K.A. Owens. I'm just so happy to be here with these brothers, some of the sharpest brothers in the city. So, uh, and, uh, and definitely uh, got their finger on the pulse. Uh, just as a comment that the, that first iteration of the Klan was, you know, sponsored and led by white elites, uh, the elites of Southern society, ex-Confederate. Army officers. That's one point. And two, that the Southern white male is sort of used to riding and shooting because the greatest fear of the Southern white male and Southern white people in general, of course, before the Civil War was, of course, slave revolt. That is when in the South, of course, the militia units that, that they had uh, always trained. Where in the North, the militia units 
were more decorative because, you know, after the Indians, they didn't have any Indians to fight because the Indians had already been removed or exterminated. So uh, the, the militias, uh, the state militias were more decorative. But in the South, they always rode, they always trained. They had various types of volunteer units uh, uh, like the Louisville Grays and all, just names like that. And these groups of white folks, they trained because their greatest fear was slave revolt. So since, the, and for, of course, the South did very well initially uh, in the first part of the Civil War because they were so militarized. Now, eventually, the North sort of militarized itself. It had, it had the industry uh, and uh, was able to round up enough people and then become militarized enough to uh, essentially... Uh, uh, wear the South out and down. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, but, and so the war is over. The South lost, but still you have the white men with a uh, sort of a militaristic personality that hadn't been extinguished or humbled. Well, the white men hadn't been really humbled. Uh, you know, you had, quote, unquote, unreconstructed Southerners and unreconstructed Southerners, people haven't, you know, you're supposed to surrender and then swear the oath of allegiance to the United States, you know, and they were unreconstructed Southerners. You know, there were white Southerners that went to Brazil and took their slaves with them. There were white Southerners that took, uh, you know, military formations to to Mexico and all this kind of stuff because they just didn't want to, you know, live in the United States without slavery. But so, uh, uh, and so the Southern white male, violent, militarized, uh, studies that show Southern white male today is the most violent male in the country. Cultural uh, studies uh, show that, uh, you know, white males resp- uh, responding to offenses with violence uh, then, that if, if uh, uh, you read the sort of uh, commentary on the South versus the North, uh, 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 you know, uh, before the Civil War, uh, uh, many are... Uh, uh, writings and uh, anecdotes uh, attest to that. So, uh, uh, and so the war is over. Uh, uh, militarized Southern white males, not humbled. Uh, uh, and so now the real question is what would it have, have taken for the South to accept what we call Reconstruction? Well, uh, here's what could have happened. That is, uh, Jefferson Davis, who's president of the Conf- uh, Confederate States of America, was a traitor. Here's a guy who graduated from West Point, uh, uh, served the, c- uh, the country in the Mexican War. From Kentucky. Yes. <laughs> and uh, uh, betrayed his country. And not only that, you know, when the Civil War was over, you know, Robert E. Lee, as, uh, you know, uh, at least... Uh, you know, if you want to credit with this, uh, he, he did perform a dignified surrender where he handed, you know, his sword, you know. He was in uniform and handed his sword over to, uh, you know, the, the Union Army generals. Jeff Davis, he he went on the run and tried to sneak through Union lines with his wife's dress on. <laughs> with his wife's dress on. So my whole thing, you know, here we're here in you Kentucky... Know, I- Get it how you live, but uh, so many people who uh, are neo confederates, they they perhaps would not be 
happy to hear that, you know, one of their formidable leaders, um, you know, went out like in that accord. Um, but, yeah, what, what was you saying, Brother Owens here in Kentucky? Well, here's the thing. We had the statue of Jerison Davis in the Kentucky Capitol up until very, very recently. And we had to fight like the Dickens to get that statue out of there because we had the statue of Abraham Lincoln and Jeff Davis because they were both born in Kentucky. Now, here's the thing is, I think that the statue in the Capitol that was removed was inaccurate. It should have had a picture of him. It should have been portrayed him with his wife's dress on trying to avoid the <laughs> Union troops. It was an inaccurate you know. portrayal. Mm-hmm. So go ahead. Yeah, well, I'd like to point out and read here from a Loaded, uh, which we read from uh, last week uh, by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, uh, just to, you know, uh, give some further historical grounding about some of the things you raised here. And she points out uh, in the chapter on slave patrols, In fact, the United States uh, never broke with the slaveocracy, as exemplified in the career of Nathan Bedford Forrest. He lost his parents in economic security at 17, but became a slave trader, land speculator, like George Washington was, and finally a wealthy slaver with his own large plantation. He was the epitome of the self-made man, that was the vaunted ideal of white supremacy. In the Civil War, Forrest was a cavalry officer for the Confederate Army, infamous for having led the massacre of hundreds of black Union soldiers in 1864, uh, which would be considered a war crime. Yet President Andrew Johnson granted Forrest a presidential pardon in 1868. Now, many people might know about um, the uh, the massacre at Fort Pillow. That was a big thing during the Civil War. An all-black regiment, which had surrendered because they knew they had lost the battle to uh, Nathaniel Bedford Forrest's forces, and they had uh, openly surrendered, and Forrest told his men to mow them down like dogs. But from then on, the black soldiers uh, in the war Uh, went out into battle with the cry, remember Fort Pillow, remember what they did to us. Uh, But this was the guy who started the Ku Klux Klan. And one last little piece here, just to give you an idea what the Klan did. It said, uh, the Klan, illegal as it was, operated like a huge slave patrol, requiring freedmen to have written permission to travel from the plantations where where many continued to work. Uh, The Klan established curfews. Now, this is after the Civil War. The Klan established curfews for gatherings of African Americans as well as limits on the number who could gather. The Klan burned homes, confiscated the guns of freedmen, and, and, of course, inflicted punishment similar to slave patrol beatings, but also had far more freedom to torture and murder since the black body no longer carried monetary value that the murderer would have to compensate for. Of course, black people resisted as they had resisted the slave patrols. However, the Klan was a private terrorist organization, not a public force, and had no legal status or accountability. Some Klansmen were put on trial, but none were ever convicted. Occasionally, the U.S. Army, in conclusion, 
would declare martial law, but as one army commander said in 1871, the entire United States Army would be insufficient to give protection throughout the South to everyone in possible danger from the Klan, um, unquote. And I think that's critical because there's still this notion, even by some of my comrades on the left, who say, who want to dismiss all of that, oh, this was just a few rabble-rousers uh, who didn't represent the nation as a whole. But if you look at it historically, as uh, Brother K.A. pointed out, there were, the Klan was always supported by powerful people, or they wouldn't have been allowed to exist yeah. to this day. Well, they were never truly outlawed. And it appeared from what the excerpt you just read, although they did not have legal power, you know, there was a placation to them, a sympathy, You, I think you used that quote earlier, um, you know, to their plight, which... Um, I mean, to me, what's the difference, you know? <laughs> and that's a, and I, I would say, uh, but to, um, I guess, keep it within uh, the historical uh, lens that we're at right now, um, I do think about, you know, the placation of white supremacist notions, how in many times that can be one of our most formidable enemies, um, you know, just not going far enough. Are, are assuming that um, these things uh, are just going to, you know, we can wish them away. And, uh, Brother Owens, you, you were... Uh, I just want to... Um, I'm K.A. Owens again, and just want to... So the question is, what would it have taken for the Southern populace to submit to Reconstruction uh, and not rebel against it? Well, for instance... The reason I mentioned Robert E. Lee and Jeff Davis is they were both traitors. Uh, 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 Jeff Davis, of course, went to West Point. Uh, I, I believe that uh, 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 Robert E. Lee graduated yeah. from the Citadel. Uh, distinguished. Robert E. Lee was sort of the most one of the most respected officers in the United mm -hmm. States Army before he became leader of the Confederate uh, mm -hmm. or the Army of uh, uh, Northern Virginia. Yeah. So. What should have happened is that Robert E. Lee should have been hanged. Mm -hmm. Jeff Davis should have been hanged. Exactly. Uh, uh, every Southern governor who uh, 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 left the Union should have been hanged. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody who wore a, a general's rank in the Southern Army should have been hanged. Mm -hmm. Then all the property of white folks who rebelled against the Union mm -hmm. should have been stripped from them mm -hmm. and given to the slaves. Thaddeus Stevens wanted to do that in his initial thing, but, you know, like everything, it was suppressed. People don't realize that when we talk about, and this is another issue for another time, but I'll just briefly mention that the whole piece about reparations um, of course, was uh, initiated by the uh, enslaved Africans themselves. But uh, Representative Thaddeus Stevens from my home state of Pennsylvania, who was a radical Republican, he actually put forth a bill that uh, would grant, as K.A. said, um, you know, um, 
which would, would entail that, you know, those uh, people who had been in rebellion against the Union be stripped of whatever lands they had, uh, you know, particularly the plantation owners. Those lands divided up into 40 acres. I don't know where the mule thing came from, but it was definitely, you know, 40 acres. And he even had a provision in there for the whites, the minority of the whites who stayed with the Union and fought with the Union. And, you know, there was a minority of them in the South. They would get, you know, some kind of uh, reparations. But as you said, that the ones who had participated in this rebellion, you know, their lands were to be taken from them and carved up primarily among uh, the African-Americans. And just think how much better off we could have been if that had happened and how uh, the whole thing changed. But here's the, the, the main thing, as important as that is, that I want to point out that relates to this subject. Um, in the defeat of Reconstruction, one of the main things that the unrepentant Confederates wanted was the dismantling of the black militias. Now, these black militias were formed as separate units within the Union armies, which were segregated, but because, you know, we fought with the Union, you know, naturally and understandably so, um, and, you know, there was no integration at the time, so they were separate black units. And after the defeat of the Confederates, some of those, many of those uh, black units, which were called the black militias, and you can study this reading Du Bois's work, uh, they continued on to protect their people because they knew that, hey, we can't uh, let our guns go. In this hostile environment, these people have just been defeated and they're going to be worse than ever, which they proved to be. So there was a big struggle to, to maintain those black militias who could have, you know, and it's debatable, you know, um, helped to suppress those racist forces. But part of the compromise of 1876 and the defeat of Reconstruction that we know about, which is a whole other topic, the unrepentant uh, slaveocracy said that one of the first things that's got to go if we're going to have peace in the South is these black militias have got to be dismantled. We are not going to tolerate any armed black people in our midst. And many people feel that with the dismantling of those black militias, that just made it easier for those terrorist acts. And we could have perhaps put them down after having fought, fought them in the Civil War, and many black men had been trained in warfare, and there were like, you know, almost 200,000 black people who fought in the Civil War, and not all of them got killed, but, you know, they could have been able to resist the Klan and all of those racist formation, formations, but the government again sold us out and capitulated to... Of the 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 white supremacists supremacists, um, and said that okay, well, we'll uh, if you promise to treat them right. Now imagine this: if you promise to treat the blacks right and don't harm them, we will dismantle. You know, since they had control over it, we will dismantle the black militias, and that just opened up the floodgates and the Klan and 
every reactionary in the world just came down hard on us. I mean, it's amazing I mean, it's, that we know, even survived that. It's, well, as I say, yeah, it's an all-out assault. You just basically, um, like you said, open up the floodgates or just, you know, hunting, open hunting season license on, uh, you know, vulnerable populations. We see this um, throughout, you know, any sort of recorded history where when we have persons who are marginalized, anything less than, uh, you know, of various degrees, a show of force yeah. has been the only thing that, you know, has been able to suppress them. Now, you know, is that the case in our current struggle? Mm-hmm. What degree of force is necessary in order to address these ills where it's just, you know, any level. And I, I would say, you know, persons my age, we struggle at time. Any degree of, of moderate leanings, centrist political thought feels like placation in so many ways. You know, how do we work with this, these, you know, um, fervently? And, you know, we have... U.S. representatives and senators. We just had a presidency that one of their overarching lenses was within the the uh, overreach of white supremacy. You know, to what to what levels do we do we work with people who operate like that? Well, that's a good question. Um, but you know, moving uh, um, well, coming forward with the history. As I said earlier, you know, with the uh, passage of the Supreme Court ruling of Plessy versus Ferguson, which was exactly what the unrepentant slavercrats wanted, you know, to, um, you know, give not recreate slavery, but to reduce us to as close as slavery as possible. And they were able to do that. Uh, in uh, 1898 with Plessy versus Ferguson, which was a Supreme Court ruling that said that segregation was okay. So, I mean, there wasn't as great a need for a Klan, but nevertheless, a Klan, a new Klan, reemerged um, after the uh, creation of this film in 1915 uh, when Woodrow Wilson was the president called uh, the birth of a nation, uh, in which they actually, uh, the, the, the producers actually went back in time, which wasn't that far back at that time, to glorify the Klan and the mentality that created the Klan to actually rewrite the history of the Civil War, right, which they knew would not be too flattering to them. But to make it look like, you know, the glorious lost cause, whereas, you know, uh, these folks weren't really white supremacists. They were just trying to protect white women from the from the brutal black beasts who were trying to. D.W. Griffin. uh, (laughs) From Kentucky. Yeah. Crestwood, Kentucky. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Vincent told me that earlier. I didn't. It shows you how much of history has been. Suppress. Of all my historical readings, I did not know, you know, uh, that uh, D.W. Griffith was from Kentucky. But anyway, just if you do any sort of, when you research, um, you know, post Reconstruction, 
in regards to, you know, white supremacist actions or, you know, anti-immigrant sentiments, it always circles back to Kentucky. <laughs> it seems like it does. It, it, it feel, I, I do feel like as, from being a native uh, here, it's not stated enough the role in which, um, you know, Henry Clay, uh, all these other people, oh, yeah. people that are astute, you know, sort <laughs> of a, have a political history understanding, uh, may understand, but I feel like not not as much, uh, perhaps because we did lose population during around that time, post-Reconstruction, maybe, you know, just uh, the imagery of Kentucky has been um, shifted to a bit more savory and, you know, maybe a more uh, kind of base level things, you know, the whole barefoot, no teeth, that kind of... Uh, Persistence versus yeah, yeah versus the stereotypes versus you know the uh, Kentucky and their political officials had a uh, big role in you know fomenting white supremacist notions and those and all ideas we, being you know and always have you know I was telling Ka or maybe you that you know um, that's uh, what I found so amazing since I've been here the last five or so years is that how many people outside of Kentucky, including myself, um, did not have not understood the central role that Kentucky has played in the history of this country from the characters we just mentioned, Jefferson Davis, Abraham Lincoln, all the way up to Mitch McConnell. Kentucky has played a key role in the whole white supremacist project. But I want to go into, back to the... Mitch McConnell, born in Alabama... Yeah. Okay, he's not a native, but, but okay. he's, he's done. How long did he live here? Has he lived here? He was raised here, but it should be noted that his ancestry is uh, from the old, on the, the deep south. The deeper south, yeah. yeah okay, yeah, yeah. that's, that's and, interesting. And, uh, and I think the word is he's not really, uh, he spends most of his days in uh, the eastern seaboard when he's not in, when Congress is in recess. He doesn't spend too much time here, but his ideologies and, and the forces that he's put together, you know, obviously still persist. He, even though he is the minority leader yeah. in the Senate, still has a formidable force and yeah. is able to influence uh, yeah. legislation. And I've heard that, you know, along with Kennedy and a few other people, I'm talking about Edward Kennedy, he has been, he will go down in history as one of the most powerful senators in the history of this country, yeah. which again shows, and he's just one person. Yeah, you know uh, the the kind of role that Kentucky has played. But getting back to the you know the resurgence of the Klan, since we're you know talking about the police and the Klan, just with, has to be noted as well that Mitch McConnell was contemptuous of uh, President Obama all eight years. He was disdainful uh, and contemptuous and never showed him any kind of respect yeah. as a human being, as a person, as a politician. Never did. Yeah, so one of the most powerful senators in the history of this country. Which shows you that that's what K.A. just said. It's no insignificant thing. But again, you know, bringing the history up, when the Klan um, resurfaced, uh, in 1915, you know, with the popularity of uh, uh, D.W. Griffith's movie, uh, which was screened at the White House. Uh, supposedly, Woodrow Wilson called it one of the most brilliant things he'd ever seen. He said it was history, and I'm quoting him, 
He said it was history written in lightning. And, you know, this, you know, uh, uh, created a lot of resurgence of the Klan. And, and, it's, and, and, and what I'm about to say now, I learned just recently from a forward radio interview on Letters and Politics just the other day. Shout out to the crew. Yes, and I wish I could uh, recall the, 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 the author's name. It was a, a, a female, and uh, she was being interviewed about her new book about the Klan. And it was quite revealing that when she said, you know, in, you know, in preparation for this podcast, that uh, in the 1920s when the Klan uh, resurfaced, they actually became much more popular in the North, these are her actual words, in the North and in the West than in the South. They even at some point dominated uh, the government of Indiana, which was not a slave state, uh, they were prominent in, in Ohio and in many states. So it wasn't just a Southern phenomenon. And she points out that part of how they were able to become so ubiquitous is because they started actually marketing themselves as a business. I mean, they created clan housewives. They started their own national paper. Uh, they, you know, just utilize all of the capitalistic techniques of marketing. And it, by the mid-20s, they had like, um, you know, supposedly about 5 million, and I may be undercounting them, 5 million followers. They had a major march on Washington. 25,000 people, Klan's uh, members in full regalia marched on Washington in 1925. I mean, they became mainstreamed basically in the 20s. So, so much for a few little rabble-rousers, um, which is the popular stereotype of the Klan, you know, just some poor, ignorant white folks. They became mainstreamed. They got big money. They got political power. And, uh, you know, and since then, you know, they became a... Um, a force a normalization, to be with. if you will, was heralded of them. You know, you got the, the federal government, you know, state and local as well. Forces that aren't even, you know, they're just a whisper of any, any sort of enforcement against their aims. And then, you know, it's they're allowed to just mass market, and you know, it was it was an acceptable part of you know, uh, white culture and, like you said, in the North and the South. So I think with, with that normalization, these these ideas are not treated as they should be in a benevolent society, <laughs> which is completely, you know, ostracized and you should be um, highly ashamed of these behaviors mm. and, and, these, and these ideologies. But... You know, we never. I don't. I don't know if we've ever in this country had that reckoning where we've gone enough to, um, you know, fully give these things the treatment uh, that that they absolutely deserve here. Um, well, it goes into about, what Obama said recently, if you recall. Um, if you, I mean, just recently, uh, you know, it's all over the news right now. Uh, for what it's worth, that he said they were asking him about reparations. And why he didn't promote that during his term, uh, 
and he said that um, because he didn't think that he didn't think it was a he thought it was a non-starter, um, primarily because of white resistance and resentment. Now here's a moderate black person saying that that you know I mean who was hardly a flaming militant or in any way a real threat to white supremacy uh, for a lot of us, uh, and who, you know, according to a lot of us, sold us short too. But even he had to admit that because of white resentment and resistance, in spite of everything we've gone through and suffered, that reparations in 2000, what, eight, when he came in office, Oh, was a non-starter mm-hmm. in spite of all the evidence and the losses and the suffering and the murders that that was a non-starter and that's the dilemma we're faced with. Yeah, but think, bringing it back up to, you know, where we are historically, so we had that resurgence in the 20s of the Klan. Uh, I'm sorry, you were... Well, I, was, I did want to switch. I, I did uh, want to tell the audience here you're listening to Community Control Now, WFMP 106.5 FM. Uh, I got a, my esteemed colleague, co-host Michael T. here, and uh, Brother K.A. Owens of uh, On the Edge fame. Please check him out on Forward Radio as well as uh, join us in the studio. We are talking about the history of uh, white supremacy, how it's li- linked, uh, or in, in particular white supremacist groups, and how it's linked to... Uh, current day police mm-hmm. um, I did want to talk about we, we uh, I shared with you um, a couple of days ago there was a talk on uh, Al Jazeera and a few people uh, put their um, it was a panel I think there was three of them there mm-hmm. and um, talked about the infiltration of these are active far right um, white supremacist groups, like their main end goal. And, and in particular, they focused on uh, looking at the Southern Poverty Law Center's index of uh, hate groups, but the ones in particular that they're unabashed with their end goal being uh, the aims of white supremacy, you know, the notion that, um, you know, white people, you know, white ethno states, white people should um, control every aspect of major society, anyone who goes against it should be killed. You know, these are the things we're talking about here. Um, So a lot of people who hold those ideologies and organize within those ideologies have um, joined the police force throughout our history. You know, we're familiar with um, the civil rights um, incident in particular, which was very pointed with the, uh, what was the movie here? I always get Ghost of Mississippi and Mississippi Burning mixed up. I think it was Mississippi Burning, uh, Goodman, uh, Cheney, and Schwerner. Um, that incident, which was led by uh, basically white supremacist police officers leading them um, to their own, mur- you know, to their murder. Um, so we see that that still persists today. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. Um, where they had law enforcement mm-hmm. and, um, you know, white supremacist ties. So 
Yeah, how military backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Some were commissioned, former commissioned officers mm-hmm. in the United States military, <laughs> Army captain, uh, Air Force major, uh, an Air Force officer went to the Air Force Academy. So you go to the Air Force Academy, and this is what you do? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and, and, that's, and that's another thing, too. Good I mean, that's, you know, what well, we see that it's a pipeline of um, these, a lot of these white supremacist, far right groups are uh, the bases built in the military. Mm-hmm. You know, it starts at, you know, basic training where they, you know, they test the waters of these, you know, a lot of, of the tattoos uh, with the uh, propagation of allowing persons in the military to have tattoos, a part of a, a recruiting tool mm-hmm. of that is getting these, uh, these, you know, multitude of white supremacist symbols and then organizing on that. Um, many of these uh, ones that have paramilitary militia group focus, uh, white supremacists, they, um, you know, take that military background if you have some combat experience or whatever, just the, you know, mm-hmm. weapon trainings. And we've seen some reports of, uh, you know, access to militias, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and, you know, cash yeah. of weapons being a part of how, you know, these, these, uh, white supremacist groups were able to organize. So, mm-hmm. yeah, um, that that, uh, that talk that I sent you mm-hmm. um, had a couple of reports from that. I think it was, what was the brother's name? Michael Germain. Yeah. Um, out of the uh, the Brenning Center for Justice, and uh, I think it's in NYU. Very profound and honest yeah. report. Yeah, so his, uh, his report, he's a former FBI agent who had uh, attempted to uh, infiltrate many white supremacist groups. Um, a little bit back here, but his report, uh, Hidden in Plain Sight, it, um, laid out some suggestions, and it talked about just how intricately linked in certain police departments uh, white supremacist uh, notions are and how it affects how uh, persons of color are policed in this town. Mm-hmm. And, and one thing that really struck out with me, he said... We will never truly know the depths of which um, white supremacy, in you know, in a in a political uh, activation, has permeated uh, law enforcement. Yeah, and we should. I mean, again, because as we pointed out, there's been a long history of the connection. There's no excuse for really not knowing even if we can't extricate them from it, because this has a long history. We look at the civil rights movement. I mean, it was common knowledge that all those forces that John Lewis and King and so many civil rights activists and human rights activists were up against were outright police um, and police forces that had been saturated and infiltrated by some of the worst white supremacists. I mean, the slogan back in the day was the cops and Klan go hand in hand. They knew that these people were all up in the police forces, and it would stand the reason why they would seek to uh, perpetrate, uh, per, um, uh, uh, you know, penetrate those policing forces because that gives them real power. And that refused this notion that we even see today that, you know, the people who are promoting white supremacy, they're just promoting another equivalent idea to 
uh, being advocates against white supremacy. You know, they're equivalent. They're not equivalent. You know, the 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 anti-white supremacists do not have a murderous track record like the white supremacists. I do, uh, Brother K, want to get you in here a little bit. Um, what are you thinking? And as it pertains to our uh, local and present struggle, how inextricably linked do you believe uh, white supremacist organizations are within uh, present-day police forces? Well, let's take a look at uh, how... Right here in Louisville, uh, uh, Grandmaster Jay, the NFAC, uh, brought you know armed black folks here to Louisville to show that, yes, blacks have the right to bear arms, and he came here to protect black people. Now, the NFAC has no record of violence, no record of assaulting or hurting anyone, yet he was charged uh, with crimes uh, last year, and then they... Uh, uh, just recently, they ran him before a federal grand jury I to, to, I suppose, to make it look more legit. Uh, but the truth is, all that he was doing uh, was look that that he came here uh, to protect black people, Defense. and so he was told or informed or, or surmised there were some people on a roof, and so. Uh, when you're there, are people on a roof. If you've got binoculars, you use binoculars. If you've got a, a scope rifle, you look through the scope and see who's on the roof. Yeah. That's what he was doing. Mm. So they're saying by him glassing the roof with the scope, that that is the equivalent of all of these charges against police officers, wow. threatening police officers. No. Well, first of all, the police actually point pistols and shotguns and <laughs> rifles at black folk all the time, mm. every day, every day. In fact... White police officers communicate with their pistol. When they're around a group of black people, they just pull the pistol out mm-hmm. because that's what they think they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, and so uh, those charges against Grandmaster Jay should be dropped. Mm-hmm. Should be dropped. Now, when Merrick Garland gets in, if he gets confirmed as Attorney General, mm-hmm. we need to demand that those charges against Grandmaster Jay be dropped because it is white domestic terrorists that have not only threatened people exactly. but have been killing people uh, all across the country for the past 30 years. Yeah, and the FBI has already said that. And so, exactly, uh, according to the FBI, as a matter of yeah, fact. Yeah. So uh, 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 that's what we need. To, we as black people, we as our people concerned about social justice, drop the charges against Grandmaster Jay. Merrick Garland, do the right thing. Now, when we're talking about real domestic terrorism, the people who went into uh, 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 the Capitol building on on, uh, January 6th, the people who were outside the building, I would say to them, uh, go home and rethink your life. Uh, The people who were inside the building, every single person who was inside the building needs to be charged with a felony and either they either plead guilty or they're convicted at trial. Not just breaking and entering, because they were trying to disrupt the political process mm-hmm. by using force and violence. Mm-hmm. That's what they call terrorism, right? <laughs> That's what it is. Mm-hmm. So, uh, they yeah. should, hold on. So they should be charged with uh, the heaviest possible charges. Mm-hmm. And uh, not only that, because we have to send a message. Mm-hmm. You cannot come into, you cannot do that. Because you had the entire chain of command outside the president of the United States of America was in that building. You had the vice president and his family. You had the, the Speaker of the House, 
there. You had the president pro tem of the Senate, uh, the majority leaders of both houses, all there vulnerable. So the president sent people to not only disrupt the process, but to harm, to decapitate the leadership of the country, enabling Trump to say, well, we need martial law because uh, the, 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 the vice president and the, the speaker of the House and the president pro tem the Senate, they are all, they're all been kidnapped and killed. So therefore, we need martial law. And, uh, and so, uh, yes, and I will say this, too. They are domestic terrorists. This is not breaking and entering. This is not uh, trespassing. No, 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 no. It's not trespassing. No. So now, terrorists go to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. The Republicans have done everything they can do to keep Guantanamo Bay from being shut down. Well, in that case, let me tell you who needs to go there. Everybody who was in who was inside the building needs to be charged with the most serious crime, mm-hmm. convicted, either plead guilty, and then go to Guantanamo Bay and just sit. Yeah. Well, just that's, sit. Uh, K.A. Owens here sliding into third base and uh, <laughs> with the, uh, Good stuff. Uh, the, Good stuff. The, the, the use of uh, Guantanamo as a yeah. uh, political. But, but you've ahead. seen throughout, you know, just, you know, we touched on the history and how we've never, as a nation, gone far enough mm-hmm. to completely uh, just snuff out these ideologies and how, like, the, just the fact that we don't know mm-hmm. how many uh, white supremacists are within the public spheres. There was a uh, there was a sister in that uh, that talk, Al Jazeera. Um, Check that guys out. Um, check that out in uh, Al Jazeera America. Basically, uh, the, I think the title is "White Supremacy um, in Police Forces." Mm-hmm. Came out about um, a little bit after the uh, January sixth yes. Capitol insurrection. Must and, see. Um, you know, it, one sister. She was a former white supremacist. She talked about that was one of our main goals was to af- a- actively infiltrate the public sector. It wasn't enough to just have this <laughs> extra legal um, normalization of these ideals. Mm-hmm. They wanted to, they, they knew that that's true power lies in the state and being able to um, permeate that thing. So we're talking judges, mm-hmm. teachers, yeah. medical professionals. I mean, yes. we, we touch on this all the time, man. White supremacy <laughs> is the pound for pound heavyweight champion of these things and it sort of uh you want to talk about a true trickle down mm-hmm. um it trickles down amongst all these other um ills that we yeah these institutions and, and these ills that you know the, the high degrees of the patriarchy mm-hmm. misogyny hey, can uh, I say this homophobia into, yeah um and specifically that 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 police piece um you can see why white supremacists have um have 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 uh, made that a primary uh, component of their project because one of the loopholes in the Thirteenth Amendment, which the documentary, the great documentary Thirteenth, really exposes, was that slavery was outlawed except as punishment for a crime. So the unrepentant 
white supremacists saw that this is how we can re-enslave them and ruthlessly oppress them through the criminal justice system. And they have done just that because even when you look at mass incarceration, that's a way of nullifying our power and suppressing us to the degree they can just, you know, imagine white supremacists on the, on the uh, police forces and their mission is to lock up as many black people as they can that not only takes you, uh, uh, deprives you of your freedom and allows the powers that be to exploit your labor just like a slave, but it takes you out of political life. That's one less person who could potentially be a protester, you know, that deprives you of a whole lot of other things. And you could see how that could play directly into the white supremacist project. Unlike, you know, the infiltration of other institutions that don't have that kind of power, but if you've got police power, you can deprive these people of their liberty and a whole bunch of other activities, deprive them of the right to vote, so they understand they got it's to a, control the police. It's a bully It's a bully pulpit, and the only way, we got about five minutes here, man, mm -hmm. as we see it, and this is what we advocate on this show, Community Control Now, man, the only... Uh, solution to, to kind of steer away from this is power to the people, giving as much power to the persons uh, that are policed in this town as possible. We view that, you know, the democratic control of the police, the ability, anytime there's a police misconduct concern, bringing it to a panel of concerned citizens and letting them have actual power of a legal means, judicial Absolutely. means, you know, that, that's it. the ability to hire and fire or to fire those who are who are deemed through a jury of their peers to be uh, held in misconduct, you know, having the ability to, um, you know, screen out. We talked about that was one of the... Uh, um, in goals, because we, when we go talk about, we, you know, it's good to lay out this history, but how do we turn this page of the heavy infiltration of white supremacy amongst every aspect of this life in, in America? And it's, you know, it, it, globally, white supremacy is, uh, and it, it's one of the linking factors, you know, I know, Brother K.A., you touch on many of the tactics of South African apartheid was... Borrowed from mm -hmm. the Jim Crow South, you know. <laughs> so see, we, it, we for us to not fully uh, pay this the due respect that it so does, you know, that it needs is to. I mean, it, it's it's a global pandemic all in of its own. Mm -hmm. So this guy he touches on. He said, you know, I think we touched on it. He's, like you said, everybody in the capital needs to go to Guantanamo. <laughs> it's a touch on, you know, strengthening the hate crime hate crime laws. And one of the things that, you know, I, I would say uh, some of the lessons I've learned of uh, the two major uh, factors to sort of uh, the track behaviors, punitive in the form of uh, fiduciary, you know, you start hitting people in the pocketbooks, and then uh, legal, you will get locked in a cage for doing this behavior, you know. Um, so he says, you know, he very much advocates on strengthening the hate crime laws. And then he said that every police 
um, force should have a hate crime registry. Mm. We should have a natural national registry. This goes into some of the more uh, progressive police reform persons, uh, the groups, I think Campaign Zero, Movement for Black Lives, they have these sort of stances where there should be a national registry mm-hmm. of the police. Well, we can cross-reference that with a national hate crime registry mm-hmm. that is ran by the federal government. Mm-hmm. Um, we touched on, uh, uh, well, I talked to you off the air about um, the Department of Homeland Security during the Bush W administration uh, had a had a report all raring to go talking about how far the infiltration of white supremacist groups went into the police offices. And then I think, um, and either one of y'all, correct me if I'm wrong, there was one around like 2014 or so. It was an mm-hmm. FBI report, mm-hmm. but this Homeland Security report, both of those reports mm-hmm. were, were um, taped down in so many ways. They were kind of, they were uh, sort of, uh, you know, subterfuge, you know, it was, it was very much uh, quiet as kept. And we still deal with this to this day. So mm. I, I, want, I want our campaign to be inextricably linked to, we're not just saying, when we say power to the people in the form of democratic control of the police, we are talking about the utter dismantling of white supremacy as a, as a force and as an ideological base in which to commit terrorist acts against others. Mm-hmm. So any final thoughts? Kind of on um, what those we got about three minutes left. Any final thoughts on? Uh, well, I'll just know, say how, that how you know, uh, bringing this back around to the Black Panther Party is that that was one of the major reasons the party was formed, because just like now, police repression in the 1960s was the uh, most urgent thing on Black people's minds. When a poll was taken in Oakland before the party was formed as to what issues affect you more than anything else. And you know we have a lot of issues. But the number one thing then and now was police repression. The people said that we got to do something about these police and what they're doing to us. And this is happening all over the country. It continues to happen, even with black policemen on the force and all these so-called review boards, which have no power. That's the ultimate thing. See, the police aren't willing to give up power. It's a very paternalistic thing. Well, they'll yeah. say, well, we'll check into and it and we'll have a commission, but yeah, no power. Number one thing, <laughs> and I'd say, man... Talking here, same as it ever was. I think you go, you know, in any of these neighborhoods to this day, and you would still that, you would see that that's probably still the case to a lot of people, man. So I don't know. Final thoughts you got here, brother Owens? Um, brothers, outstanding show. Uh, uh, you know, glad to have you as part of the uh, 106.5 FM family. Uh, you guys are doing outstanding work. Keep up, keep up, keep it up. Yeah, let's do it, man. So. Community Control Now, signing off.